Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. She is headstrong, outspoken, and cantankerous, and yet charming with a razor-sharp wit. But Tasha Morton is losing her memory. Her son has to take charge of her care. And it stands to reason that with an outsized personality like Tasha's, there will be drama. I'm Kitty Isley, and this is a Mother's Day bonus episode of 24-7, our podcast about caregiving. Novelist Brian Morton is Tasha Morton's son, and his new book, Tasha, is a loving and darkly funny memoir about fighting with and caring for his mother in her final years. Brian's book begins on the night of a massive storm in the New Jersey suburbs. Despite the weather, Tasha Morton insists on driving herself to see her granddaughter in a dance recital. But the storm has flooded the roads and floodwaters end up pouring into her car up to her knees, trapping her in the car for the night. Without a cell phone, she was stranded and terrified. By the time Tasha was rescued and taken to a hospital, it was clear she'd also had a stroke. Here's Brian reading a section from his book about how things had been going for Tasha before the accident. For years, she'd been having health problems and refusing to do anything about them. Her hearing had been failing, but she didn't believe in hearing aids. She'd become somewhat incontinent, but wouldn't see a urologist. I don't need anybody looking around down there she said. Her driving had become so erratic that I wouldn't allow my children to be in a car with her, even driving on local streets that she'd been driving on for 50 years. She was like a fascinated tourist, taking her eyes off the road to appreciate the architectural features of the houses she passed, or like a nature enthusiast, delightedly turning her head to watch dogs or squirrels at play. Now, I thought, she'll take her health and safety more seriously. Everything that can be fixed will help her fix. What Brian is describing is so familiar to me, to anyone who's cared for aging parents. As we learned in our family, you notice things change gradually, but no one really wants to admit it or address it. It's too delicate. It's too scary. But then there's an emergency you can't ignore. And that's when you think, finally, we have no choice but to face this head on. And now maybe we can make things better. We can step in and get help and quit denying there's a serious problem, but take care of it. I asked Brian if he really thought that way, too. I had a few days of fierce, wild hope about it, partly because for a very short time, my mother seemed sobered up. My mother, who was normally either magnificently stubborn or exasperatingly stubborn, depending on your point of view, or both, for a few days after her stroke, was vowing to take her health more seriously. And and like a sucker, I bought it. Uh, As soon as she felt a little bit better, back in control, She was once again refusing all medical help, 
making fun of the doctors and nurses and uh, other uh, health professionals who are trying to help her. She comes through so brilliantly as this buoyant, confident, yes, sometimes over the top or larger than life is a better way to say it because she is embracing life. She has this relish for, seems to me, being in the middle of things and not letting anything pass her by because she does think she has something to offer. You have a sentence here. You say, she was a woman who found it impossible to imagine a situation that wouldn't be enhanced by her presence. So who was your mom in her prime? <laughs> that is true. And as, as I say in the book, if the history of Hollywood were uh, reinterpreted by her, if, we, if she were directing the great movies, she would have directed Titanic so that at the end, next to Leonardo DiCaprio, b- b- bouncing up and down in the water next to him would have been his mother. Or if she directed Ali, Ali's mother would have been in the ring with him, punching George Frazier in the nose. Uh, my <laughs> mother, my mother was a woman who grew up in the Bronx and uh, was always a hugely independent spirit. She left home at sixteen. She renamed herself a name that nobody she knew had, Tasha, and uh, she not always, but in many ways, she was a fighter all her life, a fighter for social justice as she saw it. She was very involved in campaigns for integration, racial integration in the town we lived in, Teaneck, New Jersey in the 60s. She was a campaigner for open education uh, as a school teacher, as a kindergarten, first grade teacher. She ran a really innovative open classroom. And uh, those were some of the delightful sides of her personality. But she also was utterly committed to doing things her way, even when it made not only the lives of everyone around her more difficult, but made her own life more difficult. I tell a story in the book about how she was a hoarder. And when we finally prevailed on her to bring somebody in to help clean up her house, the woman who came in filled up 15 big uh, trash uh, bags, put them out on the curb. And that night, my mother went out, brought all the trash bags back in and unloaded them in the house. Oh, my God. It is ringing bells. <laughs> and maybe that's I think I had a question about that, actually, because I think there's something when you get to be a certain age or when you've had a lot of experiences and then maybe when you're on the verge of losing them and losing your whole history because you may have to move or lose something that maybe you get more attached to things because they represent either what you hoped you could become or get done, or they are attached to memories or, you know, if she was born in the twenties, she certainly knew the depression. So maybe there was an element of that as well. I think so. I think that's very well put. And uh, you could see the same thing in her attitude towards people. She, She just couldn't let people go. My father died in 1984, and she lived until 2016. And I don't think she ever stopped mourning him. Well, you describe her as not wanting to get rid of a jar of pickles that's in the refrigerator (laughs) because she thought they were still there for your dad. Yes. Gherkins. Yeah. Dick loved gherkins. This must have been 25 years after he died. The damn gherkins were there, and she would not let you throw them out. (laughs) I think there are a lot of Americans with spice cabinets in their parents' houses that probably date to the same era. Somebody's like, well, that's perfectly good spice. Don't throw that out. 
she seemed to me as having a powerful and accomplished life. She was a teacher. She got a master's. She was on the board of education for decades. And then when she left the board, she still attended meetings. She didn't seem to want to miss out on anything. And that makes it, as you sketch her, even more poignant and sad as you, the reader watches her lose some of her faculties. But she still keeps this sort of spit and vinegar personality that doesn't suffer fools and sometimes seems to like to stir the pot just for the fun of watching a reaction. She's very clever. Very much so. When when she was in Helen Hayes Rehab Hospital, at one point, a nurse came in to take her blood pressure. And my mother sees that the nurse is wearing a cross around her neck. And my mother, a confirmed atheist, starts arguing with the nurse about religion, asking, how can, she, how can you, a person of science, believe in God? And uh, <laughs> as I was watching this, I was half thinking, Mom, just let her take your damn blood pressure. But half of me was kind of proud of her for still being that that feisty and still being that committed to her principles. I love that anecdote because at a certain point she becomes very logical. It says, you know, you you're a woman of science and you say God, you know, God sets in motion and humans decide, but what kind of God would decide to allow the Holocaust? You really want to pray to that God? And <laughs> she's very funny. And now you got a little statue of him hanging around your neck. <laughs> she said, you've got hanging in between your boobs. Right. <laughs> and you know, I cracked up when I read that and thought, you know, she's not wrong. And what I loved was that you were able to see the upside of having that peppery personality and that fearlessness of like speaking her mind, which it maintained part of her personality to the reader as you're describing her decline. She clearly has this sharp as a tap mind and not afraid to speak it. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was a side of her. But I, I guess we're all such complicated creatures. There was the other side of her who lived in this house that was much too big for one person to take care of, much less a compromised person. Uh, in in this state of crazy making clutter, and she refused to accept help, refused to do anything about it, and it was only when she was really far gone with dementia, you know, no longer capable of having a conversation with, that I found these diaries of hers in which she confided that she was tortured by being unable to do anything about her house, tortured by being unable to get herself together to move out of the house. She had this element of self-awareness, but couldn't get herself to do anything about it or even accept help. That was the most frustrating thing. My sister, uh, my wife and I, my brother-in-law, we all wanted to help her move into a better uh, situation, but she she fought us every step of the way and she was she was a very good fighter you know it seems to me after watching so many friends go through this that no one really wants to move no one wants to leave their house and so it often only happens in an emergency and then it's terribly painful and there's just there's pain on all sides the people who supposedly are pushing the loved one the family member to downsize or to move to a place for care are you know, sort of the enemy in that, in that mm-hmm. framing, but it's because it's gone so far because no one will actually face what's happening. Right. Is, is that true? I mean, I like to think that when we're old enough for these decisions to come along, 
that we'd be rational and accept the advice of our children to move to someplace more manageable. Are you saying that we won't be rational, that we're all, that we're all doomed to repeat those mistakes? I don't know. I'm still feeling a little bit, um, somebody said it's PTSD after you do this kind of intensive caregiving. So I'm sort of like, I don't want to be in the situation in which I'm that feeble and unable to get care. So I think and hope I can set it up ahead of time, but you know, that's a fantasy too. <laughs> I don't know. And, and you took him in. I moved in. You moved in. That's right. That's right. I'm in their house and wow. the house I grew up in. And it's still hard to let things go that aren't even mine. Mm-hmm. This is their stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't have tons of it, but they sure have a lot of books. And so even letting books go feels like kind of a piece of my past and my relationship, my understanding of them. Like they are what it looks like to look at that bookshelf yes. and see those books. Yes. I want to go back to your mom's life. So listeners understand some of these layers. You ha- you hit this moment that so many of us do. Your mom has a stroke and you realize she cannot drive anymore. And you are obviously the bad guy because you take away the keys. Uh, rather, you take away her license. And in this spirit of, sure, we can fix this. Maybe we'll just get her to take taxis, um, that it will solve everything. And I wonder if you could read on page 43, one of your wonderful um, hoped for illusions. You're, you're going straight for all my illusions. Okay. Uh, here is one of my illusions in detail. I'd called all three cab companies in Teaneck to set up an account with them so that my mother would never have to pay for her rides. I imagined she might develop a relationship with a cabbie. I imagined something heartwarming, something out of a movie in which the cabbie, a hardworking Palestinian immigrant, and the passenger, a cantankerous Jewish communist, at first regard each other suspiciously, then rail at each other in a sharp-tongued but good-natured way, and finally come to mean more to each other than anyone would have believed possible. I'm putting it in a caricatured form, but I really did wish for something like this. I not only wished for it, I came close to expecting it. She never really will take a taxi, but she manages to get some free rides from a senior shuttle and quite a few friends, maintaining her insistence that she will not pay for a taxi, which I understand that too. (laughs) How did you get around that um, not driving? Well, it was really hard. Uh, On the one hand, taking away her license seemed like the obvious thing to do. She was refusing to take a driver's rehab class that was offered by the rehabilitation center. And at first I was, that was all I was asking for. That was all me and my sister were asking for, that she take the class. She refused. It was clear that she wasn't capable of driving well without some sort of rehab class. So I took her license away really without a second thought. I I guess I would do the same thing again but the consequences were really grave. Given her stubbornness and her refusal to take cabs, it meant that she was suddenly housebound. And occasionally friends would pick her up, give her a ride somewhere, but not really that much. And I don't think I had thought enough about the kind of social and psychological damage that can occur 
when someone who is already deeply compromised is suddenly much more isolated than they had been before. It's something that I can still lose sleep over if I think about it now. It's, it seems like one of those situations for which there was no good solution. I also wanted to pick up on this note you had about um, people maybe not picking her up as much or including her. And you write about how friends disappear. You write, it's easy to become an injustice collector. And it stabbed me in the heart because I thought that's exactly how I felt, like both guilty at being mad at people who'd been longtime friends and did not seem to recognize the need for their, their changing their friendship, but staying with it. And then I had to kind of back off and realize there are a lot of reasons people don't want to come around when their longtime friend is changing. Yes, yes. Uh, I struggled with those feelings as well. On the one hand, I couldn't stop daydreaming about how much better her life would be if only her friends were to form what I call in the book a sort of emotional bucket brigade with everybody uh, committing to checking in on her just just once every two weeks or even once a month and giving her a ride to board of education meetings uh, and, and this sort of thing. And I was really upset at the way so many of her old friends seemed to disappear. On the other hand, she was a difficult woman at the best of times. She was not someone who was good at gratitude. She was always a lot more conscious of what she wasn't getting than of what she was getting. So I wouldn't be surprised if many of her friends thought that it was uh, sort of an exercise in futility to, to help her out. Do you think she noticed that pulling back or was she just feeling more isolated generally? I think she was feeling more isolated generally. I think by the time it started happening, she couldn't track the withdrawal of her friends precisely. When she was younger, she was a very gifted holder of grievances. (laughs) (laughs) After my father died, she kept a list of everyone who'd called her and everyone who, who hadn't. That gift slipped from her grasp by the time she got much older. You know, I was struck. She had her own inner generosity and you describe how she helped arrange care in late life for the woman her father had carried on a long affair with that was very painful in her family, painful to her mother. And at the end, when this woman had no one else, your mom made sure she was cared for. Yes, this was someone who my grandfather carried on a virtually lifelong affair with. He was always leaving the family, living with this other woman, Amelia, for a few months, and then coming back. And my mother, understandably, hated this woman. But when everybody else in their circle had died, my mother saw that Amelia had no one. And my mother, yes, as, as you say, arranged for her to uh, move into the, uh, the actor's home in Englewood, a, a sort of low-cost uh, assisted living residence for former actors. And my mother would visit her. And one of the helpful things for me about writing this book about my mother was that it helped me see things more clearly. That is, before I wrote about it, I always thought, oh, that's one of life's ironies, that my mother ended up being the only person there to take care of Amelia. 
But then when I was writing about it, I had to think about it more. And I thought, no, that's not one of life's ironies at all. That was a mark of my mother's character, that she took this upon herself. Let's say writing the book led me to appreciate the depths of her generosity and also the depths of what she'd given me in ways that I hadn't and in, in ways that I wish I had understood when she was alive. Okay, we have to take a break here. And when we come back, what happens when author Brian Morton does something he really shouldn't? He puts a recording device in his mom's house to find out if her complaints about her caregivers add up to anything real. You're listening to 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. San Antonio was once home to one of the busiest red light districts in the country. But it's a history that's been hidden. I'm always interested to find women that find some kind of autonomy um, during this time period. And a woman who was a Mexican immigrant who owned her own brothel refused to pay these licensing fees. Sex work is the oldest profession. And yet, sex workers are rarely remembered throughout history. But attitudes towards sex work are beginning to change. The job is a job and we have to do it to survive. Some people just have to take greater lengths than others, you know. Running Red Lights is a limited series podcast from Texas Public Radio. Find episodes and more at tpr.org forward slash RRL. You're listening to 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. Back to my conversation with author Brian Morton about taking care of his mom, Tasha. Let me ask if you could kind of rattle off the steps of care. You start with the stroke. You think you can move her. That doesn't work. She's still in the house. You take away the license and try to arrange transport. As things decline, what are the fixes that you try to put in place? The most vivid one was this. She refused to leave her house. My sister, me, my wife were frantically researching on the internet all the time and were stunned by how few resources there are for those of us trying to take care of compromised elderly parents. It left me feeling like the unofficial motto of this country is, you're on your own. We would get the names of consultants, but the consultants turned out not to know any more than we did. Finally, we prevailed on my mother to accept live-in care, and we arranged for some people who had come highly recommended to move into her house and care for her. And she would complain about them. She kept saying they were mean. And she was too far gone at that point to really say what she meant. So at first I just rolled my eyeballs and thought, well, she would say anybody was mean. She just doesn't want somebody living with her. But then I, I got curious. I, I, I just wanted to check. And so I did something that was probably not quite legal. I concealed a recording device in her den where she spent most of her time. And I found that her aides were abusing her verbally in the most horrific way. One of them was telling her how ugly she was, how ugly her soul was, how 
when she died, people would come to her funeral, but only to dance with joy at the fact that she was gone. It was simply stunning. And after that, we finally decided that we needed to move her into a dementia unit of a nursing home. And that was better in the sense that we no longer had to worry about being at the mercy of someone cruel, but the care she received there at a place that, again, had come highly recommended and had good reviews and, and uh, talked a good game was very disappointing, I'd say. You'd go in and the aides were all sort of looking at their phones, ignoring the residents most of the time. I felt so bad when I read your description of your experience with these in-home care aides because they were profoundly nasty, cruel, quite sadistic sounding. And then you had another care aide who walked out the door to go score some drugs and your mom gets picked up by the police on the street in the middle of the night and you have to drive to her house or to the police station. I mean, that feeling of being betrayed when you are doing your best to stand up care for someone when you can't be there yourself, you really are asking, you're putting someone you love in someone else's hands when you can't be there. And so I can see kind of how much of a gut punch it is to find out. I can't even trust this person. It's one thing to look at your phone. It's another thing to be really sadistic to an old woman who is not in her right mind. And that just was really sad. Yeah. Listening to those tapes and listening to my mother who was not herself at all at that point, listening to her feebly trying to defend herself verbally, saying, they will not dance at my funeral. It was really really heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to think about it now. I understand and felt deeply for my dad about not wanting to leave his home and how strange it is that we ask that. Yes. here, you've made your life here. And now just when you're the most feeble and the most vulnerable and the most maybe scared, you have to go live in a dorm in a strange place with strangers, strange smells, lights, people who also can act out. And that's how you get to finish this life. That doesn't even make sense to me, except it's kind of the best solution we've come up with. You're so right. It's so true. When when we finally did prevail on my mother to uh, have her live in a, in a community. I remember dropping her off and having that feeling again of this will be good for her. This now, now we've got her in a nice situation. And that very first day there was another woman at the table where she was having lunch, who was just bellowing, who was just screaming and wouldn't stop. I remember sitting there thinking, Jesus Christ, what have I, what have I delivered my mother into? How do I expect her to, uh, to manage this? Yeah. When she was still at a point where she could have lived on her own in in an assisted living community, we would talk about how if she were living in a nice apartment, we could hang out with her and she could spend a lot of time with her grandchildren. You know, they could, they could come and as they really couldn't in her house, but as much as she wanted to spend time with her grandchildren, she couldn't be flexible in that way. She couldn't make that change. 
maybe that's what they mean about, you know, you're set in your ways. Mm-hmm. You literally are, you know, your thought patterns are in a groove and, and then you just can't adapt. I had a couple of other questions. One is that you're a novelist and you write in the book, in the memoir about an early novel you wrote where you had a character inspired by your mom that was sort of a comic figure and that she had expressed her distress. I don't know how hurt she was by that depiction or if it was just became kind of a running complaint and joke. Um, But I wanted to ask how you thought about going into this portrait of your mom. When I set to write about her again, you know, 30 years later in, in this memoir, part of what I wanted to do was to write about her sort of in the round, write about her more fully, create a more fully realized portrait of who she was, not just the sort of uh, satirized Jewish mother, but the person who had lived for her principles and who had uh, been a formidable figure in so many ways, and the person who had formed me in so many ways. So in part, I saw writing this book as a kind of act of repair. I see that. What do you think her legacy is to you? Well, she taught me about the importance of being a fighter for causes you believe in. I think she was fiercely loyal and fiercely loving and As a teacher, I I write about this at length, I think, she believed that her job was to encourage children to discover and express their natural love of learning. And that really set the mold for me as a a teacher. I I teach writing. at, at Sarah Lawrence College. There's quite a nice parallel there. <laughs> Without you. you even putting your finger on it, I kind of through the lines picked it up and it occurred to me late in the book, wait, you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I try to approach it in the same way. I, I, I teach writing, but I see most of what I do as just trying to encourage young people to trust themselves as writers and to treat them with with respect as people who are exploring the same creative mysteries that I am. And I think I really get that from the way my mother approached her first graders and kindergartners. There's a lovely little passage where you talk about a surprising thing. Your mom had something in the classroom called the children's phone an actual telephone and elementary school kids, you know, five and six-year-olds, kindergarten, first grade could answer real phone calls and practice their phone skills and their being grown up. And I wonder if you had a children's phone to your mom, what you would want to say to her now. <laughs> or maybe Gosh. what you think she'd say to you if she called. <laughs> if she called, she would, uh, she would give me a hard time about certain things in the book. That would be the first thing. And then she might... Uh, she might thank me for writing the book. I hope. <laughs> and as to what I'd say to her, well, I, th- I think I tried to say it in the uh, 200 pages of this book or whatever it is, which 
mostly amounts to thank you. Yep, that's all we can say. Brian Morton, thank you so much. And thanks to your mom, Tasha. Thank you. It's been so nice to talk to you. Brian Morton is the author of the new book, Tasha, a memoir about caring for his mother. And that's a wrap for season two of 24-7, our podcast about caregiving. We're deep into work on our coming season for later this summer, and I want to hear from you. What do you like? What do you want more of? How can this podcast be helpful to all of us? Send me your thoughts by email or voicemail to 247 at tpr.org. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry. We have editing help from Cindy Carpian and Reka Murthy. 24-7, a podcast about caregiving, is a production of Texas Public Radio. Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. We're building an inclusive community designed to support everyone impacted by dementia, starting with improved care for patients and their caregivers. Thanks to this commitment and the work of our partners, San Antonio has been named a dementia-friendly city by Dementia-Friendly America. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org.